This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we bring you our third annual Oscars preview for the year 2023 and our second annual Oscars predictions bet. But first, Dad, how do you feel about the year 2022 in movies? Well, it was good to be back in theaters and seeing things coming uh, out and be released and such. But, eh, I mean, it was a good year. It wasn't a great year. But having come off the pandemic and having production halts, I think we did as well as we could have expected. I think there was a clear shift. The last two years, we clearly got all the streamer Oscars. Because if you remember over the last two years, most everything, we were just waiting for it to come on to Hulu or Netflix or HBO or whatever. And this year was the first one where you really had to kind of seek out these movies in theaters again. It, it felt a little bit old school in that regard. It was tough sometimes finding some of these films, especially in my area, which is more rural and a little less... I don't know, the word would be sophisticated. Whole Foods. Yes. So I think it might be an okay year. I don't think it's the peak of what we got in 2019 when I thought there were probably three or four all-time classics in the Oscar race. That being said, I do think there's at least one or two that are really, really good for this year. And uh, I do think that the film that... I'm almost positive we'll win Best Picture. It would be kind of on the level of a Moonlight beating La La Land during the Oscars level shock if this movie didn't win. But that, to me, might be one of the seminal achievements of this decade, if not the first 50 years of the 2000s. Sure. And I think I know which film you're going with. And I can honestly say that probably is indeed the case. So... Do you want to get to our annual bet and uh, we can just pick up from there? Sure. So for those in the audience that are not familiar, because we only did this once last year, for anyone that is new to the show, we do an annual Oscars bet where he who predicts more correct winners on Oscars night gets to pick a, well, I guess any movie, but a probably a bad movie, more than likely, for the other person to do in the style of the show. So I lost this last year. You made me do the film Glenn or Glenda from 1952 (laughs) by Ed Wood. If you want, there is a specialty bonus episode out on our feed. I think it was a couple of months ago in December, if I remember right, that I did. It's probably about a half an hour. It's it's a shorter version of the show, but we wanted to give everyone the stakes of what this bet was going to be this year during the show so that you understand what we're playing for. So with that, what film have you potentially selected for me that you have hanging over my head if I lose? Well, being the big Batman fan that you are, 
Amateur historian, but go on. Yes. I picked the worst Batman film by what most people say. One that I th- will make you cringe sitting through. Batman and Robin. Yes, the Bat Nipples film with George Clooney. It is a truly terrible film because it doesn't even play into the campiness that was the 60s Batman movie, but a worthy choice. I will have plenty of difficulty with that particular movie. If only for the Arnold Schwarzenegger ice puns. (laughs) And for you. And I want to make sure that I read the plot summary for this correctly, so I'm just going to pull it up here briefly. But I have selected... Freddy Got Fingered, the Tom Green film starring Rip Torn as well from 2001. And I'll just read the brief synopsis from Google here for your pleasure. Gord Brody, Tom Green, is a struggling cartoonist trying to pitch an animated show to Hollywood executives. When he fails, he returns to his hometown with no choice but to live with his parents and younger brother, Freddy. His father, Rip Torn, doesn't approve of Gord's career path and pressures him to gain independence. As father and son exchange barbs, Gord comes up with a lie that changes everything. He claims his dad is molesting Freddy, leading to drastic consequences. I do also want to stress that this movie is a comedy, albeit a dark comedy, but given that I think the two leading least funny comedians in the history of time to you are Tom Green and Pauly Shore. I think this is a worthy selection to hang over your head for the duration of the Oscars evening. It it would be the only redeeming quality is, is I absolutely love Rip Torn. Uh, I think he will probably have some redeeming quality about this film, but, uh, I am not looking forward to it if I have to watch it. All right. So we have the stakes already down for everybody. So do you want to get started on our predictions? Yes, we can get right to it. So right from the start this year, last year we didn't predict every category, and I think we only chose 15 out of the 23 categories to pick from. This year we are doing all of the categories even though I have not seen a single one of the shorts, so I won't be making a should win. I'll just simply be making a prediction because I think these are kind of the fairly easy front runners for several of these categories. But let's start with Best Animated Short. The nominees are The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse, The Flying Sailor, Ice Merchants, My Year of Dicks. Yes, you heard that right. And an Oscar told me the world is fake, and I think I believe it. (laughs) Do you want to start, or do you want me to go first? We'll kind of alternate from here. Well, I'll go ahead first. All right. Mine is not based upon... I have not seen the animated shorts, and I'll agree. I tried to see as much as I could, um, but I've been (laughs) extremely busy with work. But mine is done on some research and synopsis. I'm picking the film... There's a Hollywood insider who has done several big box films who's the producer of one of these animated shorts. And I have a feeling Hollywood's going to give him an Oscar as a producer for this animated short. So I'm going to go with The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. 
This was produced or produced by J.J. Abrams. I have a feeling Hollywood may try to give J.J. his first Oscar. Except that he is not up for the award. Yes, I know, but still, I know. A lot of these short films get backing from a lot of periphery figures, celebrities and such. I remember the uh, film from a couple of years ago that I, I can't remember the name of it right now. It's still up on Netflix, I believe. But that was Groundhog's Day, but for a guy getting murdered by the cops, black man getting murdered by the cops repeatedly day after day, and he just keeps waking up to the same reality. But that one had a bunch of different basketball players, several rappers, big name celebrities attached to it, but only two people that actually made the film were recipients of the Oscars. However, I will say that I also made this prediction and that uh, will be split between the two of us because it is the betting favorite okay, by a good margin. In fact, I think all of these shorts have a fairly obvious betting favorite right now. But let's move then to best documentary short. I know you've seen a couple of these. I have not seen any of them. And I will just give a prediction then. The current betting favorite is... The Elephant Whisperers, and that seems to be the one that's at least gotten the most attention so far in the awards leading up to the Oscars so far. So that will be my prediction. And that is also mine, and it's both as a uh, what I think will win and what I thought was the best one. I've seen four of the five documentary shorts, the four that I five, I thought the Elephant Whisperer was the most entertaining and the most beautifully shot. I should give the nominees for this category. I forgot to do it before. So The Elephant Whisperers, Haul Out, How Do You Measure a Year, The Martha Mitchell Effect, and Stranger at the Gate. Let's go to Best Live Action Short, then. The nominees are An Irish Goodbye, Evalu. I will probably get the French pronunciation of this wrong, but Les Poupilles. Correct. That would be my guess. Night Ride and The Red Suitcase. So you are up first. I've seen a couple of them. Uh, I have not seen The Irish Goodbye, but from what I can gather from conversations, it's the likely winner. So I went with the betting favorite as well on this one, so we're going to split the category because there's actually one that's gotten a little bit more buzz coming in. I'm going to go with Les Pupilles. I didn't know that was the betting line, but I looked at several different critic reviews, and so that's why I made my decision against the betting line. And that makes sense. I It's picking and choosing where to be conservative and where to be a little audacious in this award circuit that I think is going to be the difference between the two of us on Oscars night. All right, we have our first actual category that is the difference between the two of us, and uh, that's going to lead to some interesting text messages during best live-action short presentation. Yes. When no one else is going to be paying attention. Anyway, (laughs) let's go to best makeup and hairstyling. The nominees are All Quiet on the Western Front, The Batman, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Elvis, and The Whale. And what I think will win is Elvis. I know that it is kind of in a tight race with the whale right now. I just think that that movie's got to win for something. 
And there are very few things other than makeup, hairstyling, Austin Butler, and costuming that it's really in the running for. And I think that older Academy voters are going to be more easily swayed to Elvis than they are the whale. Even though I think that race is kind of neck and neck for best actor and we're going to get there eventually. But that's who I think will win. What should win is the Batman. If for no other reason than Colin Farrell is playing the Penguin and looks nothing like Colin Farrell. Okay, I also have Elvis. And the reason is because I have a feeling that Hollywood's going to go a little more mainstream with the Best Actor Award. and So this is going to be a consolation prize for the film. So I'm going to go with Elvis. I think the whale makeup and hairstyling and what they managed to do in that film with the various characters, I think was phenomenal. I think that should win or should have won, but I'm going to go with Elvis. All right. Then we have Best Costume Design. The nominees are Babylon, Elvis, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. With this, I will also go with Elvis. Oh, excuse me. It was your pick first, so I guess we'll just swap the next two. But I will also call Elvis on this one just because, again, I think that out of all of the awards, this seems to be the most likely spot for Elvis to pick up a below-the-line category. And Baz Luhrmann Productions, I think his wife does all the costuming for his films, but I think she's been nominated several times and in fact might have won once or twice already. As far as should win for me, this might be a bit of a surprise, but Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris has to do a lot of fashion design work in that movie and put together a lot of dresses that I don't think the ordinary production is necessarily going to do in order to make that film even work. Because a lot of it is about, yes, the character studies, but a lot of it is also about the costuming. And so for me, just the level of specificity, the difficulty of degree to what they're doing that wasn't done necessarily before. I mean, I liked Babylon, but costuming was not necessarily something that caught my eye. Everything, everywhere, all at once, eh. I mean, the the costuming and production, other than maybe the hot dog fingers, which you could maybe put in hair and makeup, I guess, as a prosthetic, I didn't think much of that one. And Black Panther was borrowing from stuff that he had already done. I just thought that had to do the most heavy lifting for a film that was about the costuming. So I will go with that as my should win, even though Elvis is my prediction. I also had uh, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris as my should win. I thought the uh, costume design was beautiful. I thought the dresses that were the integral part of the story were absolutely stunning. And uh, again, I would encourage people who want to just have a, a good time watching a very simple film that's not overly complicated. Um, it's kind of a feel-good story. Watch that film. It's worth the it's worth the time to sit down and watch it. Um, but ultimately, I'm going to go with a film that I think is not going to get as much recognition. I'm going with Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever, because I think this is going to be, again, a consolation prize. 
All right. So another split for us here. So then we'll go to best visual effects. I will read the nominees, but I'm pretty sure we both know which one will win in this category. It's pretty much one of the few guarantees on Oscar night. But the nominees are All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, The Batman, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and Top Gun Maverick. You may lead. Avatar The Way of Water. Absolutely. It's a slam dunk that this is probably going to get the win almost assuredly going to get the win and it probably should win due to the amount of visual effects that are created for the film. I think all of these visually are stunning movies, but that is an almost entirely visual effects movie. And so of course it was going to win. Did you have a different should win? I uh, have not. That's the one best picture nominee that I have not seen. I've seen the other nine. So it's hard for me to say otherwise, but Visual effects, it's hard to say with how all of the camera shots and such in the Jets, the Top Gun would not have been at least a serious contender in most years, but for Avatar. Well, I think you have to separate out, though, visual effects, which is the computer generation after the fact, the cleaning, all the other processes that go into it from cinematography. Well, I understand the difference, and but it's still, I think, I mean, there was only so much you could do with the camera. There was things that had to be added in order to create it. All right, that takes us to best production design, which actually has become one of my more favorite awards to at least nominate for a best picture, just due to the degree of difficulty for a lot of these productions. I just think the way that they're designed has really caught my attention since we really started doing the show in a way that I wouldn't have necessarily understood five years ago. So the nominees for this one are All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, Babylon, Elvis, and The Fablements. I think that this is a pretty obvious choice. It is a fairly leading candidate in this category, and that's Babylon will win, but... All Quiet on the Western Front, due to the amount of sets that they had to do, the various recreations that they had to endure, and I know it looks a lot like 1917 to anybody that's seen comparisons of the two films, but I thought that that probably should win in this production award. You might make a case for Avatar if it wasn't that most of the production design was done computer-generated-wise, and so I think that falls more into a visual effects category for me than production design. I also have Babylon for production design. Uh, Normally, I would say that, uh, again, All Quiet on the Western Front would have gotten it, but I think All Quiet is going to get it in a couple other categories uh, of some significance, so I think this goes to Babylon. I don't know... I just think that Babylon did have quite a bit of production design that was quite intricate and probably actually did deserve it, although All Quiet is close. All right. Then we have Best Sound. The nominees for this are All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar The Way of Water, The Batman, Elvis, and Top Gun Maverick. You may lead. Top Gun Maverick. 
I don't have much else to say. So that's both will and should? Yes. Well, that's where I went as well. I thought that by far it's the best recreation of sound that allows you to be put into the scenario of the movie. It places you inside the cockpit with a lot of the sound that's going on through the course of the film and enhances your viewing of it in a way that I just, I wasn't quite there on the Batman or Elvis or some of the other films. So let's take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing The Big Lebowski from 2009, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, John Turturro, and Sam Elliott. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, we are now up to Best Original Song. The nominees for this are Applause from Tell It Like a Woman, Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick, Lift Me Up from Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Natu Natu from RRR, This Is Life from Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I believe I'm up first, correct? Yes. I'm going to take the fairly obvious choice in this one because it's swept just about every award coming in in Natu Natu. I think that will win. However, I think the much more superior song is actually Lift Me Up. That being said, Natu Natu is actually a song that's within the course of the movie instead of being a song that's just tacked onto the credits. And I don't like the fact that a lot of our original songs are somehow being nominated for Oscars for just having pop artists tack on songs at the end of movies and then somehow win awards. It It's like, it feels like cheating to me in a way. And uh, I'd much rather that a Bond film win for a title song that they use certain chords or bars in through the rest of the score throughout the movie or Natu Natu has a fairly good dance sequence to it. I just thought as far as if you're just judging it based on song quality as opposed to best original song in use of a film, I would have gone with Lift Me Up. I just think it's a better song. Well, I actually listened to all the songs and um, I also went with Not Too, Not Too. And I actually thought it was the better song. I thought it was very unique, original. Is RRR an Indian film or Pakistani? Yes. It's not Bollywood. It's something else. It's a, a different filmmaking culture from the southern part of India. I can't okay. remember the name off the top of my head, but it's an excellent film. I really wish it would have been nominated for more stuff because it's an absolutely ridiculous and wild ride that's very fictitious in its historical telling, but it's still an excellent film. And to only really be recognized in original song, I think is a little bit disconcerting given what I thought was a fairly good quality film that we often don't get a lot of good recognition for in something like the Oscars. Well, and that's part of the reason why I picked it because I think this is really a tribute to Indian filmmaking and Indian culture that has been lacking in our Academy Awards. I think it was just a very fun thing. I watched the video or the portion of the film 
that the song was done around and the dance sequence. <laughs> I thought it was great. All right. So that takes us to best score. The nominees are All Quiet on the Western Front, Babylon, The Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and The Fablements. I believe you are first on this category. All right. Now, when I prepared my notes, I had one idea in mind and wrote it down. Having thought the process through and thought again, since I finished this about three hours ago, I'm going to change my answer. I'm going to go with score. I'm going to go with Banshees of Intershirin. Really? Yes. Wow. I I like the score. I like the the musical context of and how it played into the story itself and i think it's a dark horse for this category i know that no one else will agree with me i haven't seen anybody else it's not the odd line uh, or the the betting favorite and i've only seen a couple of people who have commented but i just have a feeling that there's going to be some desire of the academy to at least recognize what is a quality film okay I, uh, wow, I'm a little bit stunned here because I thought if you were going to go with a dark horse, you'd go with the one that at least like has a 50-50 shot, not this one. But so the two betting favorites at the moment are Babylon and All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. And I don't know if I have said my feelings on the score for All Quiet on this show, I think it is a very good quality film. I have my issues with the film, and we'll get to some of that in the screenplay category. I think the worst part about the film is actually the score. I think it is bombastic without really needing to have that in the movie. It is like a cannonball to the chest every time it comes in. It's just overpowering the movie in a way that I don't think that you needed to do. In fact, I think this film would have been just as powerful without a score. And that's not something I often say because I love good emotional scores in films. But I thought a quiet, more reserved score would have been a better touch on this movie as opposed to the overly bombastic three-note kind of electro-techno version that we got. So I don't think that should win. In fact, my will and should are Babylon, because I think that's the score that best complements the film in any of these five nominees. I didn't mind Banshees of Inishirin, but I thought it kind of was a little too passive for my my taste. But uh, personally, all of Chazelle's films, save for maybe First Man, have a really good musical score to them. And so it's really hard to pick against him because I think that is one of the few things that always pops in his films. Uh, and that, that's what I had originally done. And I just decided to change at the last minute because I thought seriously about it and thought to go a different direction. Like, honestly, this should almost be a power up. Like, if you get this one right, you should almost get two. <laughs> I could be making this selection on my road to seeing Tom Green. Yeah, but it's bold. I'll I'll give you credit for the boldness of that pick. Then that takes us to Best Animated Feature. The nominees are Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, Puss in Boots' The Last Wish, The Sea Beast, and Turning Red. 
I have to go first here. I think the obvious choice and the one that seems to win just about everything coming in is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I also thought that was the best of these that I have seen. I was unfortunately unable to get to Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, and Marcel the Shell with shoes on, but I was not necessarily impressed with Turning Red this year for a Pixar movie. For whatever reason, that just didn't connect with me. I thought the Sea Beast was very good in animation, but it didn't have as good of a story. And I thought Pinocchio was the most standout of these as far as animation achievement, but as well as a storytelling device. And I'm almost guaranteeing that it's going to win because Del Toro is one of the best campaigners in Hollywood because literally everybody loves him. So that's my pick. Well, I could make it real simple and just say ditto, but I will say that I agree. All right. On both fronts? Yes. Did you get to any of these movies? Other than just brief synopsises where I kind of tried to at least watch a few minutes of each, I could not get to everything. So, no. But from what I did see, I would agree with what most of the critics have picked. All right. So that puts us at Best Documentary. The nominees are All That Breathes, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, Fire of Love, a House Made of Splinters, and Navalny. Now, this is a category that resonates with you a lot more than it does with me because I like narrative structure a lot more, and you seem to like documentaries a lot more than I do. So this is yours to start. Who is your will win and should win? Will win is all the beauty and the bloodshed, simply because of the subject matter of the documentary. It's a very good documentary. Um, I was watching it to, leading up to the show. It was the one film documentary that I had not seen other than... I missed one documentary, but I did watch this one because it was one of the ones that was supposedly uh, the most recognized in the award shows leading up to it. And it's a very good documentary. But the one that I thought was the best documentary and the one that was the most enjoyable to me was Fire of Love. And I thought that should win, but I don't think it will, simply because all the beauty and the bloodshed is about art. It's about the <laughs> greed and the uh, Oxycontin travesty that's uh, permeated through culture. So I think that there's just too much about it that cries that it should win and it will win. So you allowed me to go with the very conservative and favorite choice that has won pretty much every documentary award coming in, and I think will be a political tie-in because I have a feeling that Zelensky might do a video pop-in during the Oscars, Navalny. I, I love the Navalny. I, I love the, the documentary, but go ahead. Well, that's my pick to win. It's also the thing I thought was the best. I enjoyed the other ones. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed was really depressing. And <laughs> Navalny has moments of that, but it was one of the few films that really made me question my own prior instincts coming in. Because I think that all the media attention he got in the United States at the time was kind of stilted. They thought he was this opposition figure, but that he was welcoming of Nazis. And so how could he be like a really good person? And so I kind of was torn on it. 
but he's an incredibly charismatic leader. He's a guy that has the best intentions for his country. I can completely see where he's coming from. And then to top it all off, I uh, tapped into my Russian correspondent and she loves him too. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Because I just had to figure out, am I viewing this through the lens that is kind of jaded from the American perspective or do these people actually appreciate and love him? And given her stance on Ukraine and everything else that's going on, I had a feeling that she was going to be very positive on him, but she was overflowing in praise on the man. So to me, that is the best of the documentaries, even though I enjoyed the others as well. Best international film, All Quiet on the Western Front, Argentina 1985, which is Argentina's nominee, Close from Belgium, EO from Poland, and The Quiet Girl from Ireland. So I don't have a should win in this category because I only saw one of the films, unfortunately. But I think this is a fairly easy slam dunk for All Quiet on the Western Front. It is the only one of these five to be nominated for Best Picture. And so I don't think there's much mystery behind my pick here. Well, that's my selection. And I will blow my own horn a little bit because after I saw it, I saw it before you. I commented that I thought this film was outstanding and would get both a Best Picture nomination and a nomination, if not a win, for cinematography. Hint, hint as to what my selection will be in an upcoming category. And you told me I was probably crazy. But uh, I'll pat myself on the back on that one. So uh, that is my pick. All right. I will concede the plaudits there. You were ahead of me on this particular movie. I thought it was going to be very difficult for a German movie to be nominated for a bunch of awards outside international feature, particularly given the affinity that the Academy still has for the 1930 movie. But I was wrong. And please don't cut that portion. I was not going to. Okay, because I, 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 I'd like to have that available. You can queue it up whenever you would like. I'll even include this little sparse right here. Okay, good, because I may, I may cut it and use it as a ringtone. Okay, however you need to uh, get yourself through the day. All right, that takes us to Best Editing. The nominees are The Banshees of Inishirin, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick. Uh, I think you are first on this one. (laughs) Um, This should be a no-brainer. It's everything, everywhere, all at once. The editing that had to be done in order to make that movie seamless, jumping from different... What's the term where you're jumping? Technically dimensions, but it is really more referred to as universes because it's the multiverse. Yes, jumping from universe to universe and making it all seem seamless and everything took some significant talent in editing. I do think a lot of this has to derive from the story, but you really do need a talented editor to make going between the hot dog fingers world and back to the regular world and then to the Hollywood world all seem effortless and not lose your place in the movie 
And the movie never really loses energy once you get to the point where Kihei Kwan is like eating the chapstick. From there, it's pretty much a thrill ride up until the last like 15 minutes where you're in tears. So I, I agree. This is the should and will win for editing. And I think that's the harbinger of its likely best picture win. All right. So then let's go to best cinematography, which you've already given your pick for. But yes, all quiet on the Western front. Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, Elvis, Empire of Light, and Tar. I did not see Bardo or Empire of Light. Given the critic acrimony for both of those films, I just didn't bother with uh, wasting my time, even though Roger Deakins shot Empire of Light, and he is truly the great cinematographer that we've had for a while, and I think he's at least won two Oscars by this point. He should probably have had many, many more. He's shot some of the most important films ever made. But for me, given the choices that we have, I thought the only one that could have stood up anywhere close to how well shot All Quiet was, was Elvis. But it's All Quiet on the Western Front will and should win. And I agree wholeheartedly. The battle sequences alone, while clearly inspired by both 1917 for Roger Deakins as well as Steven Spielberg with Saving Private Ryan, they're still some of the best war sequences we've had in film for probably the last 20 years. I thought some of the best cinematography was the contrast, where it was the serene, just scenic views interspliced with the chaos of war made it much more impactful. All right, so that takes us to Best Original Screenplay. The nominees are The Banshees of Inishirin, or as someone on this program has often referred to them, The Banshees of Ed Sheeran. <laughs> uh, fuck you. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, Tar, The Fablemans, and Triangle of Sadness. If we were going based solely on originality of screenplay... Triangle of Sadness would probably get it. However, I thought for a long time coming into this that we were going to get Banshees of Inishirin to win Best Original Screenplay due to it not ending up winning Best Picture, and so this was going to be a bit of a makeup award for Martin McDonough, even though he won for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri a few years back. But everything seems to be pointing to it being a big night for everything, everywhere, all at once. And I also thought this was the most audacious script to combine all of the elements of comic book lore with a movie that actually applied all of the materials and made it understandable to the general population. I think it should win and will win. Oh, I'm going with uh, McDonough and Banshees simply because... I think it was a beautiful script, it's a beautiful movie, it's a beautifully acted movie, and there's a certain empathy that Hollywood has for films that hit on so many notes, and they're going to look for ways to give them kudos, and so I think it's going to be in the original screenplay. Will win, and actually, I it's a toss-up as far as should. I... I had a hard time differentiating between Banshees and everything everywhere. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Banshees on should win and will win. All right. So you will be rooting for the Banshees of Ed Sheeran on Oscar night. Yeah. So that takes us to best adapted screenplay. This might be one of the closest categories we've had. I think it's between two front runners right now, and I think it could be 50-50. I really love the screenplay for Glass Onion, and I would have had that in Best Picture. In fact, I was really hoping that it would get a Best Picture nomination, even though I know it had no chance of winning. And I really hope at some point we give some flowers to Ryan Johnson, but this came down to All Quiet on the Western Front, the adaptation from the book, and somewhat of a, a takeaway from the original Best Picture winner from 1930 and Women Talking. For me, because I really appreciate great dialogue, I thought there was really only one choice because I think it's the best written dialogue of the year, and that's Women Talking. I think it should and will win. The entire movie is about speech and about the writing and the quality of these speech giving. And yes, I know that it may be boring to some because it seems a little bit preachy at times, but it's a theater play that's being put on screen for our entertainment. A lot of it has to be an elevated language in a way that people probably wouldn't talk. And if you took actual Mennonite women and put them in this situation, I doubt that they would come up with such eloquent speeches. But that's what movies are supposed to do is take us to these places and introduce us to ideas that we wouldn't have otherwise experienced. So I'm going to go with will and should win because I just think it's the best written dialogue period for the year. I agree completely. I think it's a phenomenally written screenplay. I thought it was brilliantly laid out. Yes, there was some language and some things that were said that I'm kind of going, you're supposed to be uneducated and removed from society for a large part, and you're using certain words that are rather well-educated. It caused me a little pause, but I kind of was trying to watch the film and keep an eye on your mother who watched it with me, whose family were Mennonites, just to see how her reaction was. And some of the language and some of the story kind of raised her like, huh? So that did cause me a little bit of pause, but I think the totality of the work was so good, I have to say that it was the best, and uh, I think it will win best. All right. So we will go to our second break here, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, if you want to follow along during the Oscars with our picks, there's a link to our website that has all of our individual picks displayed in the show notes, or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com slash podcast to find it. You can follow along and then tweet at either of us on Oscars night if you so choose. All right, so we are up to the acting categories. First up for us is Best Supporting Actress. The nominees are Angela Bassett for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Hong Chow for The Whale, Carrie Condon for The Banshees of Ed Sheeran, 
Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere All at Once, and Stephanie Sue for Everything Everywhere All at Once. I believe you're up first, yes? Yes. Who should win? Uh, Hung Chow for The Whale. I thought she was absolutely phenomenal. Jamie Lee Curtis was very good also, and I would give her probably the number two ranking, but I think Angela Bassett will win. So we have the same will win. I thought Angela Bassett was very good in the film, but is it worthy of giving her an Oscar other than kind of celebrating her career, somewhat of a Lifetime Achievement Award? I'm not sure. I thought she was very good in the film again, but I I just can't quite get there. But I do think she will win because she's won just about everything coming in except for the SAG Award, which surprisingly went to Jamie Lee Curtis, who I could also see kind of getting her own Lifetime Achievement Award. But for me, the person who I thought was the most pivotal to their movie and ended up because they had to play so many different characters within one I guess, body, is Stephanie Sue. I thought she was the most pivotal of any of these five characters to their movie because she's not only the villain, but the central emotional narrative within the course of the film. And she's got to play three or four different distinct characters within the course of the movie. So I just thought degree of difficulty, the importance they are to their movie, She, to me, was the most important and best supporting actress this year. All right, then we go to best supporting actor. The nominees for this one are Brendan Gleeson for The Banshees of Inishirin, Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway, Judd Hirsch for The Fablemans, Barry Keoghan for The Banshees of Inishirin, and Ki Hui Kwan for Everything Everywhere All at Once. This is a fairly easy prediction for me, He has won every single thing coming in. This is almost an absolute guarantee and will be an early moment in the Oscars because usually Best Supporting Actor is like two or three categories into the night and is one of the big awards that they kind of give you as a taster coming in. It's going to be Ki Hui Kwan, and it should be Ki Hui Kwan. Even though I thought Brendan Gleeson was outstanding in The Banshees of Inishirin, I thought Actually, all of these were pretty good in their movies, but he has to do the most while also not necessarily overpowering any of the other actors in his movie. He has to come in, he has to be a superhero, and then he fades into the background enough to allow space for everybody else. And I thought he had the most difficult challenge within a movie to be a great supporting actor. But again, please, Academy, Let Harrison Ford give him his Oscar. Don't miss the opportunity. I'm trying to speak it into existence. Please, I want to see it. I want it so badly. Let (laughs) Indy give Short Round his Oscar. Please. It would be a great moment. It would be something memorable. Okay, I agree totally. In fact, I would say this is probably the strongest category in the Oscars this year. I could see any one of the uh, five nominees winning in any year, and it was that strong. I think his performance stands out because of not just what was expected of him, just the fact that here's a guy that had been in Hollywood and had acted, and then all of a sudden 
after several years comes back and does just a, a, a lights out job. But I mean, Brendan Gleason was phenomenal. Uh, Judd Hirsch, oh my God. I mean, 88 or 89 years of age, he's doing this job or part. This is a second nomination. I think it's been, what, 43 years? Correct. Can you name the movie he last got a nomination for? Yes. Um, he played the psychologist in uh, Ordinary People. Correct. And he was fantastic in that movie. Yes, he was. Phenomenal actor. This is usually one of the most stacked categories every single year because there are a lot of really great supporting male parts written. So I'm not surprised necessarily, but I would agree with you that if it were to be a question of could any of the five people up for a category win, this would be up in the top three minimally. All right, let's move to Best Actress which has been basically a two-horse race the entire season, but the nominees are Kate Blanchett for Tar, Anna de Armas for Blonde, Andrea Riseborough, controversially, for To Leslie, Michelle Williams for The Fablemans, and Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once. I'm up. Yes. Thought long and hard about this. I will say that Andrea Riseborough did a phenomenal job. But Kate Blanchett so epitomized the character throughout. I mean, she was everything you would have expected the character to be from the story. It, it like came through the pores of her very being. And she did such a phenomenal job to me. I know she was the early favorite and then kind of way off old. Whatever. She's still, in my regards, the one that should get it and will get it. The entire movie is built around her performance, and reasonably so. She will win this, even though there's been, I guess, somewhat of a surge for Michelle Yeoh winning the SAG Award, and so I do think there's a dark horse possibility, but it's really hard to deny Blanchett getting the Oscar since she's won just about everything other than the SAG Award coming in. I just think there's a little bit too much behind all the other members of the Academy to not let her win for a tour de force performance. But in any other year, and even in this year, I still think Michelle Yeoh, this is probably her crowning achievement performance in a career that spanned, I think, at least 40, if not 50 years in cinema. And some may say that it's kind of a makeup Oscar comparatively to Blanchett, which may be the better performance. I don't agree I think Michelle Yeoh should win, but I also understand Blanchett. And so Blanchett will win the award, but I think Yeoh probably deserves it just a little bit more. That moves us to Best Actor. The nominees are Austin Butler for Elvis, Colin Farrell for The Banshees of Inishirin, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, Paul Mezcal for Aftersun, and Bill Nighy for Living. This has been a three-horse race the entire season, Farrell has run a distant third, I think, for most of it, but did get the Golden Globe for, I think, comedy, if I remember right. Or maybe it was reversed. It might have been, I don't remember. The Globes is all over the place. It's why the Oscars is a better award show, even though, well, never mind. (laughs) So I think this really comes down to Fraser versus Austin Butler. 
I can understand that because Elvis is primarily, even though the structure device or the framing device of the film is through Tom Hanks's eyes as Colonel Tom Parker, it is an Austin Butler movie and his performance is central to that movie working at all. But the best achievement acting wise for me is Brendan Fraser for The Whale. And I'm going to do one of my rare audacious moments. I also think he will win. I, I concur exactly. I I thought seriously about the, the, the various categories. I thought he did a phenomenal job when I saw the film. I have never deviated from that. I think he did the best job of any actor. I think his story um, rings very well among Hollywood elites and those in the Academy were voting. If you saw his acceptance speech at the SAGs, I think I don't see how anybody could have not selected him for best actor. I thought his was the most emotionally devastating performance of the entire year. It was the one that left me with the most impact and power of it. And I think there's going to be a sense that Austin Butler, even though he has kind of just become Elvis and he's done a lot of good campaigning, I think there's a possible perspective that due to age difference, that this is going to be seen as Butler may get another opportunity down the line that we could reward him for, but this might be the last chance that we really get to recognize Fraser who at one time was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood around the time of the Mummy films and has faded from glory partly due to things that were outside of his control. And this is somewhat of a reclamation project for the Academy, and I think it would be one of the great moments of this particular Oscars in a way that last year's Best Actor winner was not. So let's move to Best Director. The nominees are Martin McDonough for The Banshees of Inishirin, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, I think that's how you pronounce it, for Everything Everywhere All at Once, although they are often referred to as the Daniels, Steven Spielberg for The Fablemans, Todd Field for Tar, and Ruben Ostlund for Triangle of Sadness. Will win are the Daniels, should win are the Daniels. Whether it is the writing of the movie, the concept of the movie, the direction, and all of the little pieces that put together, you have to have a very intricate and intentional design to how this movie is going to work. Otherwise, it doesn't work for the audience. And because it is the crowning achievement of film for me this year, I think that this is the best directed movie, and I've been singing this film's praises for months now. I think that even though I also made a very impassioned monologue last year for Steven Spielberg that we didn't recognize him enough for being the living legend that he is, I just think that they were better than he was, even though this is a very personal movie for Spielberg this year. They are my will and should win. I'm going to agree on both counts. I think that it was they did the best job directing. I really, before the year started, was hoping that Spielberg could get a uh, kind of a lifetime achievement award for best director on this. 
But um, while I, I really enjoyed the Fablemans and thought he did a great job, it's overshadowed. So I'm going to give it to the Daniels, and it should win, and it will win. I know. His third Best Director Award, especially considering there were years like he was not nominated for Best Director for Jaws, that are just travesties. Yeah. But a third win would put him second all-time by himself. One director has, excuse me, I think Weiler has three director Best Director Awards, so I guess it wouldn't be by himself. But John Ford has four. But even so, that is the pinnacle. I don't think anyone would get close to touching that with how much we try and divvy up the awards every year. And any repeat or multiple-time winners in a modern sense just doesn't happen very often. For anyone to win two of anything is an achievement. To win three would put you in the exact category he needs to be in the end of his career, whenever we look back on Steven Spielberg as a whole and his entire filmography. I just don't think this is the year and the movie for him to do it. No. All right. So that takes us to Best Picture, but before we get to that, we're going to do our tiebreaker. So based on everything that we've done so far, if we tie for the amount of correct picks for the night, then we go to the tiebreaker. And our tiebreaker, as we did last year, is which of these people that passed away this last year in the in-memoriam section will be the one that is closest to the end of the in-memoriam montage. It's one of your favorite moments of the Oscars every year, so I know you'll be paying close attention I think I got it last year with Peter Bogdanovich, if I remember correctly. But I will let you have first pick. It is one of my favorite moments, simply because when, you know, I'm at that point in my life where longevity becomes uh, key and thinking back of people who have been in film or been involved in film and being nostalgic. But I had one person, I, I went through the entire list, and at first glance, people are going to go, really? But then she was so beloved in so many methods and such, both in film, on stage, in animation. It's Angela Lansbury. Oh, okay. I also had Angela Lansbury as my top pick, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. And uh, who do you have as your uh, second since we've tied again? Well, don't worry about it. I'll let you have her. I'm going to go with Ray Liotta. Uh, If I had a second pick, it would have been Jimmy Kahn. Oh, I didn't think about him. Yeah, that would have made sense. My third one would have been Olivia Newton-John, but yeah, James Kahn makes sense. That would have been a pretty big one. And I I forgot that he had even passed away during the, I guess, time period between last year's Oscars and now. So, yeah, that would make sense. But I already locked in Ray Liotta, so I understand. And now we'll watch, and Angela Lansbury will be the first one on the montage. Yes. Yeah, that's the complicated thing anymore. They don't wait for some of the big names till the end. They started putting them at the beginning, because I think last year we both had Poitier, except they led off with him. So then it ended up going to our second and third well, it's always been that the last is usually was always considered the big, and the the second was always the lead. But Portier, because he's the epitome of being a uh, a clear pioneer, being such a pioneer 
for African Americans in mainstream film, yeah, you really should start out with them. I guess in retrospect, I was kind of should have figured that out. So we agreed at least so far on five of the top six awards. We differentiated on best original screenplay. We agreed on cinematography. We agreed on editing. We agreed on international film. We differentiated on best documentary. We agreed on best animated feature. We split on best score. We agreed on best original song. Best sound, we agreed. Production design, we agreed. Visual effects, we agreed. Costume design, we split. Makeup and hairstyling, we agreed. Live action short, we agreed. Best documentary short, we agreed. And best animated short, we agreed. Oh, excuse me. Live action short, we split. So that makes it five so far that we have different from each other. I don't know if tiebreaker will come into it, but just on the off chance, it's still there. So that leaves us with the big award for the night, Best Picture. The nominees are Everything Everywhere All at Once, Top Gun Maverick, Triangle of Sadness, Avatar The Way of Water, Elvis, All Quiet on the Western Front, Women Talking, The Banshees of Inisherin, Tar, and The Fablemans. So before we get to our actual predictions, we go through all of our rankings from 10 to 1, and you can say a couple of lines about each movie as you go along, but what was your, excuse me, because you didn't have a 10th film, you didn't see Avatar, I guess I have to start then, correct? Go ahead. All right. So my number 10 film was Elvis. I think this is clearly the worst of the Best Picture nominees. I still don't understand what the fuck Tom Hanks was doing in this movie. It makes no sense to me. I don't like the framing device. I don't think that they did anything that was all that interesting. It was entertaining, sure. Austin Butler was a very good Elvis, but is that enough to really put this on the level of, I don't I don't understand what we're doing with these musical biopics that we constantly seem to have to like put out these music videos every couple of years. Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, and now this. I, it just doesn't make much sense to me, but we're going to continue to keep doing them because people pay good money to see them. And they seem to do at least decently well when they're not actual franchise IP. So that is number 10 for me. What is your number nine? Triangle of Sadness. I saw it, uh, I watched it yesterday, actually. It's a interesting film. I don't <laughs> I don't know how great a film it is. It's kind of odd. Very th- or three very distinct pieces or parts. Yeah, it should be on the list, but I, I just didn't care for it as much as the other films on the list. All right. For my number nine, I had Triangle of Sadness. I understand that it's supposed to be very dark humor, and it has a lot of things to say. It's just not a film that necessarily resonated with me and is not necessarily a film that I thought was all that funny. I understood where other people thought it was funny, but I have a very difficult time with theater of of the absurd. And I still have difficulty with that one scene that if you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) 
Monty Python did it much better in the meaning of life. I, no, I'm not sure they did, but regardless, it doesn't matter. Your number eight. Elvis. A lot of the same things you said, but uh, I actually didn't mind Tom Hanks's character because I'm old enough to remember Colonel Tom Parker and how weird of a person he really was. But I, the story itself, I don't know, I, I felt the story itself was kind of a caricature. It was very superficial of what was Elvis. Elvis had was a much bigger issue of what was going on in society and impact than what the film showed. I thought uh, it tried to portray Elvis more simplistic, and I think Elvis was a much more layered person and character than what was presented. So that's why I had a problem with the film in general. I just didn't think it did Elvis justice. All right, my number eight is Avatar The Way of Water. Visually stunning film. I think the visuals are even better than the first movie, but the story is pretty shallow yet again. I, in fact, think the first movie had a little bit better thematic layering to it than this film, and there were several of the characters that just didn't make sense, and I can't remember half of the characters' names which isn't saying much for its plot and character development within the course of the film. Very entertaining, but not one that I think is all that outstanding, so it's my number eight. Your number seven. Top Gun. I mean, it was a decent film. It was solid. I just didn't think it was anything special. I mean, I had a hard time finding flaws with it. I just didn't think it was that special. To be honest... It was better, a lot better than the original Top Gun, which I tried to avoid seeing because I just thought it was an over-glorification of the uh, in, uh, military-industrial complex as I was in my um, anti-Reagan era. Okay. My number seven film was Tar. Great tour de force performance, but I missed a lot of the subtlety within the movie. There were a lot of things that I had to have explained to me by people discussing the thing on podcasts after the fact. I missed a lot of the plot line with her grooming certain individuals, even though it seemed rather obvious to other people. And I also didn't necessarily hate the character as much as I guess you're supposed to throughout the course of the film. I know it's allegedly challenging to people of my generation for what she says in that classroom speech or monologue about Bach. And I know that's the Rosetta Stone that unlocks the film, but I just missed whole big sections of this, so it didn't work as well for me as a character piece. I can understand from her performance why I can respect the film. I thought it had very good individual moments of greatness. That classroom scene is great when Kate Blanchett confronts the bully of her daughter at school. That is an absolute great moment. I think the ending was one of those that was kind of like shocking the first time that you see it because of how far she's really fallen. But overall, I just don't think as a collective group of plot lines that it worked for me nearly as well as it did for other people. And so I just thought there were better movies that connected with me a little bit more this year. Your number six. I had tar. And it had moments. 
the interview she did at the beginning of the film where she's talking about a director being a metronome and how the director has the ability to control time, that resonated with me. It was a brilliantly written part or part of the movie and the dialogue. And that's something that I'm going to hold and keep with me for the rest of my life because it was so poignant and beautiful, but it was obvious. I mean, this was an, this was a way of presenting the me too movement, but from a different direction, instead of it just being a guy, you know, attacking women, this is a woman attacking women showing that it's all aspects and all areas that it can happen. At times, I, I thought it was a little preachy. And again, you look at these films through the colored lenses that are your existence. And I'm a middle-aged white male in the Midwest. Okay, so I, I'm not going to see the subtleties and understand exactly her points when she's having that whole discussion on Bach. And, and to some extent, I'm sure it was supposed to challenge some of my preconceived notions, which at first reaction agreed somewhat with her. There were aspects of the film that were very good, but I, a large portion of it I thought was kind of redundant and boring and had a hard time understanding where it was going at times. It had a lot to say. I just think sometimes it got lost in the in in the process all right my number six is all quiet on the western front we've talked about this quite a lot already i had some difficulty coming into the film with how much i respect and admire the 1930 best picture winner and part of the reason that i probably don't have this higher is partly due to that but also because i still am a little bit conflicted over the added parts for the Daniel Bruhl scenes, the negotiations to end the war, partly because I think that this is somewhat of a German reclamation project that paints them as the victims for World War One, where I think in the intervening years, you could maybe put a, a characterization of that in the negotiations. I can see where they're coming from, but I don't think that they can entirely cop out for their culpability in World War One. And especially because this movie starts in, I believe, late 1916 and then ends in 1918. You are missing two very key important years for what the German war effort was and everything that was going on that is a little bit more apparent in the original movie than it is here. And so partly due to the, my conflicts with that, I put it at five because I just had a little, or excuse me, at six, because I thought the other five movies just did a better overall job of having a consistent narrative that I I felt was a little bit more impactful. This is one I, I agree also, and that's where I have for five is all quiet. But it's not really a, a critique of the film because, quite frankly, I thought the, the add-ons were really well done and showed the absolute folly, the stupidity of war, and how sometimes politicians, for reasons that are only political and have no real value, waste human life. Soldiers are, are, are 
charged with protecting our way of life, our country, whatever, however you want to phrase it. And the only thing they ask sometimes is to make it worth their life that they have to sacrifice it. And this just shows that a lot of politicians just don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, they don't take into account the human cost. And so I thought those parts worked wonderfully to me in just the sheer waste. The final scene is clearly affecting for that exact reason. And I don't think you could come out of that not feeling that way. And so I think it, what it's supposed to do is to question sometimes what politicians are doing and whether they're actually honorable or trying to protect the country's best interests or their own. And so in any other year, you know, it may be higher for me, but I have to compare it to the remaining films and what I thought of them and what impact they had on me. So that's why I went with that one, because I, I couldn't go any higher considering the other films, even though I found there was some significant redeeming value in the film and some of the scenes, as I've indicated. All right, so that was your number five. So my number five is The Fablemans. I think the intrigue of this film, for me at least, is really in knowing that it's a loosely based adaptation of Steven Spielberg's life. And for the man we have affectionately called Sir Steven on this program many times, he is the number one director of the most films we've covered so far on the show. It's a look into his life and at least his perspective of how he grew up and was shaped into arguably the greatest director of all time. If you don't have that coming into this film, I'm not really sure how this film connected with you. It's a nice, quiet story, but I just don't know how much intrigue you'd have in this, and I think that's reflective in how low the box office receipts for this movie ended up being. Ultimately, there are some great moments in here, I particularly liked Judd Hirsch's scene in the movie. I liked the camping trip, even though it has some issues on the back end of uh, the plot line that involving his mother and some other stuff. There were some great moments while he was in high school and kind of the molding that would go on in a adolescent of the time. But I thought a more effective movie, and I'm going to borrow from several other reviewers who have said this already, but would have been Steven Spielberg's early career and how he goes from directing some select episodes of TV to doing the TV movie to getting Sugarland Express and then getting the project of Jaws. If you have that time period of his life where he's kind of trying to break out and he meets people like George Lucas and you know some of the other people of that new Hollywood director's pack, I thought that would have been a much more fascinating film than what we ended up getting, which is about his childhood. And to be quite honest, we've seen his childhood on film multiple times, most notably in something like E.T. So it ends up being my number five. Your number four, sir. Uh, the Fablemans. And I would add to that that, I mean, it told you the story of how he became a flawed individual who was looking for redemption in other aspects of life was looking for significance, meaning, and how he was going to achieve it coming from a flawed background where there was questions as to his relationships with his parents and with his family and such. 
it's not like I had a horrible childhood, but I mean, I came from, from relative obscurity and had to find my course and my way. And what you become is, is a flawed individual. You have certain talents, abilities, certain uh, things that are positive in your life. And if you can make the connections with things that enhance the positives in your being and de-emphasize the flaws, you become successful. And your comments about it would have been much more interesting to see him come through the director's roles of television and up through to Jaws probably would have been more interesting. It told you who he was, but it didn't tell you how he became who he became. And I think that was the more interesting story. And I hope at some point in time, he considers telling that in some way. All right. So that takes us to my number four, which is The Banshees of Inishirin. We watched this film together in theaters back in October. And I don't think we both appreciated it nearly as much as everybody else did on first viewing. It was a film that I don't think either of us really understood because I don't remember first viewing this as much of a comedy and everybody else seems to think that this was one of the funniest things they'd seen this year. I got much better laugh out loud moments in three billboards, particularly with Rockwell's character. But for this movie, I'm not sure that I really connected with it or understood or respected it as much until the second viewing. I could understand the pieces of it a lot better it's just still a movie that I had a lot of difficulty connecting with. And so maybe this is more of an appreciation spot on the list for me than anything else because of the response that a lot of people that I respect had for the movie. But this is not one that, other than the acting performances and all the pieces that went into it, again, which I can respect, but I'm not sure that I connected with, I'm just not sure I could put it above the other three movies that I had a stronger response to. Your number three. I had everything everywhere all at once. It is more your generation of film because of the non-linear nature of it and how it jumped from universe to universe. It was just hard for me to follow. It's just, again, it's me, and I've tried to be more open to it and understand, but it didn't speak to me as much. The ending did, and the sentimental aspect of it, but I just had a hard time understanding and following it at times. I know I enjoyed it much more than your mother did, who <laughs> who at four, I think it was four times, um, threw her arms up and said, I don't know what the hell's going on. And I kept saying, I'll stop the film and I'll watch it on my own later. No, I'm going to sit through this. And it became a dogged personal uh, challenge. She was going to sit through this film. And I think she kind of epitomizes our generation. I have a little more openness about it than a lot of people. I can't imagine there are a lot of people who are just um, average, everyday people in their 
late 40s, 50s, 60s who would understand the film, let alone enjoy it. And I get that. I really do. This was an audacious film to begin with and to be talking where it's the almost guaranteed front runner to win Best Picture is not a place I would have thought when this movie originally came out and I heard some of the early buzz and reviews on it. But this is where we are. Yep. So my number three then is Top Gun Maverick, a film that I did not initially connect to that I thought was okay, but I would have been just fine if Tom Cruise had died at the end of that run, the the ending sequence, and they give him a big send out, and then we move on to Miles Teller's character as the next big star in this franchise. They didn't do that. I thought the last 20 minutes were ridiculous with them trying to uh, steal the jet from what I would assume is the North Korean airbase and then trying to fly it out of there is just unfathomable. But on second viewing, when you kind of suspend all of the critical thinking about it, it's probably one of the more purely enjoyable films of the year. And given the response to it that everybody else had, it's just a film that I liked a lot more than some of the other ones where all they are are critical films that you have to be thinking about throughout the run. So as far as level of enjoyment, I just had more fun in this movie than I did necessarily in a lot of the others. And I know that we had a tough time with the original Top Gun. You are much stronger on your negative opinions of that. This is by far a better movie. And it really kind of redeems the original one in a lot of ways for me. So it's my number three just because of how much enjoyment and pure fun it was. The other two, I think, are better achievements in film, but this was probably the most fun movie of the year. Your number two? Banshees. And I'll admit, I didn't understand it at first. You know, we both walked out of the film, went to the bathroom, and before we walked in, I turned to you and said, do you know what the fuck that was? And uh, I didn't get it. And it took me a couple hours to understand exactly what it was and what it was intending to be. I think it was a very well done film. I think it will have a great afterlife on streaming and cable. If cable will exist that much further into the future. And I think people will tend to hold it in uh, greater respect than they do now. So that's why it's my number two. My number two is women talking. The film that when I originally came out of, I thought that was the best thing I've seen all year. It's a film that was introduced at the university to me by comparing it to 12 Angry Men, which is a film that's probably, if it's not inside my top five favorite films of all time, it's easily inside my top 10. I love people grandstanding and giving grandiose speeches that you'd never hear in regular life, but that somebody took the time to write out an argument for. It's why I love Aaron Sorkin as much as I do. Again, I think this is the best dialogue of any film this year. And I love that this, despite being being set in 2010, I think is the most relevant film to this time and place. I think Tar is probably number two, 
but this is the film that I think she said was supposed to be in reckoning with Hollywood's mistakes with all of the issues going back to the original casting couches up through Harvey Weinstein. This is a film that speaks to all the things that they weren't willing to talk about, but in an allegory that was much better encapsulating of the issue that they were and are facing now. And this movie spoke to me in a way that I didn't think a lot of other films did this year. I didn't have the same emotional reaction that I did to my number one, but in most other years would probably be my pick for best picture, but it finishes at number two for me. And so that leaves us with your number one. Women talking. All the points that you made were right on. I think this talks about the power play between men and women and how it is making an effort to redefine that power relationship both physically and sexually. And I think the film did a phenomenal job of expressing that and it said it in a way and in a context that was more subtle and actually more impactful than other films which more accurately portray real-life events. It makes you think more than react. And so I thought it was by far the best film I had seen for the year. It just resonated with me and what I see as an inequality in society between men and women. And unfortunately, I see too many men who have this bizarre idea of manhood. And I think this seems to reflect it because it places it in the context of Christianity, which I think a lot of men who tend to misuse and abuse their situation try to place themselves or clothe themselves in a religious garb. And I think this clarifies that that's not the case. And, I mean, I could go into more detail about it, but I don't want to get overly preachy, but I just think this film resonates and says something that needs to be recognized and considered by men and women's society today in general. And my number one, if you haven't figured it out by now, everything, everywhere, all at once. I've said it on the show for multiple months now that I thought this was the best film of the year and I thought it was going to win. And it's kind of borne out and proven right. It is now won the SAGs, the PGA, the DGA, and I think a couple of the Critics' Choice Awards already. It didn't win the BAFTAs, but the BAFTAs is really only predictive of the acting categories more than anything to do with Best Picture. I think this is the crowning achievement of the year. It is the film that straddles between both of the worlds that the Oscars has become. The major popcorn flicks, your avatars, your top guns, and all of the smaller, quiet, more critical movies that are Tar, The Fablemans, Banshees, etc. This is the only one that kind of was in that middle category that didn't overperform and was not a billion-dollar movie like the two that I mentioned before. 
and it's not in the small indie darlings that barely made any money. This grossed at least, I want to say like a hundred plus million dollars. It was a readily popular movie that kind of gained steam by word of mouth in a way that I haven't really seen a lot of films do that since maybe the mid 2000s. There just are not a lot of these small, low-budget films, these mid-tier films that perform like a 90s indie film, like a Goodwill Hunting, or, you know, insert certain comedies here. So I think if anything, and I know that it has been talked about for weeks on different podcasts or by different critics in the media and such, that Steven Spielberg hugging Tom Cruise at the Oscars luncheon for saving cinema Top Gun will not save cinema as we understood it from the last 15, 20 years when we had the peak of cinema about the year 2000. That's not going to happen. In fact, Top Gun is another movie that is driving the film industry into what I would call the peak and valley of event movies where we're going to get only Top Gun showing on like five different screens when it comes out and you're going to have two other superhero films and that's going to be your offering and everything else is going to be on streaming. If you really want to save theaters, you have to get people to show out for mid-budget films like this one. And this is one of the only films that was able to accomplish that in an era where I just don't find that exceedingly likely. And this is also the only movie that really, out of any of these 10, truly connected with me on an emotional level. I really respected and admired women talking. I appreciated it. I loved a lot of the dialogue, the way it made me think, but on an emotional and a heart level, nothing got to me quite the way that I did in the last half an hour, 20 minutes of everything everywhere all at once. I truly was sobbing. And when a movie does that to me, when it truly moves my emotions, when it gets to my heart, that's usually what I think is best picture quality. And much in the same way I felt about CODA last year, or Promising Young Woman the year before, this is the only one that truly gobsmacked me over the head, and I just was amazed by a film. So this is my will win and should win. Did you want to give your pick for will win? Will win is everything, everywhere, all at once. It's a pretty obvious pick at this point. It speaks to a larger audience than I am. And I quite understand that. So any moments that you're particularly looking forward to with the Oscars? Uh, I've never been someone that's really liked the red carpet. I might actually tune in and watch that this year just for the hell of it. It's been years just because I've seen some really beautiful attire among uh, the Hollywood elite. And I've also seen some some things that look like they're um, created by George Jetson's uh, tailor. And so it might be both entertaining aesthetically as well as humorous as in cartoonish. So we have Jimmy Kimmel coming back to host for the first time in, I think, five years. How soon into the program does he make a Will Smith joke? (laughs) Uh, three minutes. You think it's in the opening monologue? Oh, yeah. It has to be the elephant in the room, so you have to address it right away? Yes. I think the longer you let it sit, the bigger it becomes. 
Well, especially because Chris Rock's first special is going to be the live streamed Netflix event over this weekend. I don't think you can really escape it, but it may take the sting out of anything that Jimmy Kimmel's going to do with it. Again, the thing I'm probably looking forward to the most is please Indiana Jones giving short round his Oscar. Gotta happen. Yeah. But ultimately I think because we already know what the ending is going to be with director and best picture, or at least I would assume we basically know this seems like it's going to be kind of a boring Oscars. The longer into the night it goes. I think the big controversies are going to be actor, actress. And after that, it's just going to be kind of the crowning of everything everywhere all at once at this point. Have they announced who's going to be doing the presentations? For what? The various categories. No, not yet. But out of tradition, the previous best actor usually presents actress. I don't know who is going to be subbing in since Will Smith cannot attend the Oscars for 10 years. Yeah, I, I I got that. If you are truly making a mark of what happened last year, you have Chris Rock present that award. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine the Academy would do anything quite so audacious. It would be for a good story, though. Well, let's see. 50 years ago, for uh, which would have been 70, 72? Yeah, it would have been the Godfather and Cabaret Oscars. Okay, so who's left for uh, the Godfather? Pacino? Well, Coppola's still around. De Niro, if you go Godfather Part 2, but if you're talking the original. So Pacino, James Conn's passed now, and uh, obviously uh, John Cazale passed a long time ago. Robert Duvall. Diane Keaton. Yeah, I could see that group doing Best Picture. It would make sense. And honestly, given its stature within the industry, that would probably be the thing that I think would be one of the coolest moments. But I have a feeling they're going to honor that at a separate point in time at a different space within the Oscars, because I think that's too important a movie. I don't think they're going to do the Bonnie and Clyde thing and bring out Warren Beatty (laughs) to misread the Oscar again. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think that kind of ended, uh, yeah, no. But, I, I, you know, it would be nice to see that. I could definitely see it in, in a multitude of things. If you wanted to give Best Director, have Coppola present Best Director. Yeah. Which he didn't win for The Godfather, by the way. Who won that year? Bob Fosse. Oh. For Cabaret. Ah, uh, yeah. Cabaret won more Oscars than the original Godfather. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, I guess that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me. You know, that or, uh, his dudeness or, uh... El Deuterino, if you're not into that whole brevity thing. Next week, we are discussing The Big Lebowski from 2009, written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, John Turturro, and Sam Elliott. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. 
You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>